Hi, this is Huang Zhenyu, along with my co-host Ken Wilcox, mm -hmm. welcoming you to another episode of China 411. Today, the topic will be on cross-border business, and we're happy to welcome our guest, Coco Key. Welcome, Coco. Thank you, C. And hi, Ken. Hi, Coco. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. So you and I met only recently, so I don't really know all of your background, but um, as well as I, I, I would need to, to give a good introduction. So will you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Where did, where did you grow up and um, how did you arrive here? Sure. Mm. So my, my life is all over the place. Um, I was born in Fuzhou, Fujian province, China. Uh, Fujian is equivalent to South Carolina um, in terms of geography. And mm. I was born in Fuzhou, Fujian. And then I um, got into Beijing University in 1984. At that time, I was the only candidate accepted by Beijing University's English department. And from there, I went to Beijing University and I studied English literature and language between 84 and 91. And in Beijing, um, I had excellent, excellent time at the Beijing University. So just a second, before you go ahead, you, you weren't the only person in the department though, were you? It was, I was the only candidate from Fujian province. Oh, from Fujian province, okay. That's right. There were other students. There so. were thousands, thousands of candidates which had to pass the exam and the English department of Beijing University only picked just one. From, from Fujian province. Fujian province. Oh my gosh. So that was very competitive. Why did you want to study English? Good question. Um, I want to talk a little about my father and my mother because that's what you know how they just got my the idea of learning English into me. Mm. Um, in in late seventies, when China had no TV, almost no TV, uh, there were maybe just um, five or ten between five or ten units in the whole city all locked up in the offices of government agencies. So no family owned any TV. My father um, worked for a government security agency, but he was very good at mechanics and his hobby was fixing things up. So one day he came back and he told my mother, he said, I'm going to make a TV myself. From scratch. From scratch. Oh my God. And so at that time, making a TV by yourself is like today telling people they are going to make a Tesla in your backyard. So my mother did not laugh at his crazy idea. My mother said, go ahead, darling. So my father, the only thing he had was a book which was full of the circuit diagrams. I had no idea about that. And uh, I remember I was uh, accompanying him to all kinds of stores looking for component, electronic components. So we were shopping for the electronic components for months and months until one day my father was finally sitting down in front of the desk and he started to weld those components onto um, a circuit board. So he did that every evening after work, and he worked on this project for about three years, nonstop. So in the early 80s, we finally had this gigantic, ugly box <coughs> um, 
which was called TV. And it worked. And it worked. The screen was round, nine inches. It worked, but in the beginning, yes, yeah, just round. So in the beginning, the the image was floating left and right, left and right. But finally, he he fixed it, and he started working. So our house, can you imagine that we had a TV at home? Our house was turned into a theater. Sometimes we could have about over a hundred people cramming into our house, trying to watch the TV. They could barely see anything, but people were so excited about that. But I think I was the one who benefited most from this TV. Some of the programs were in English? Yes, that's something that I was talking about. So fortunately, at, in early 80s, the China Central TV station, they, they decided that they need to teach people English. Mm. Where to find it? They finally found a program called um, Follow Me, produced by BBC. It would cost them 2,000 English pounds, which was a lot of money for them. So with the help of the English consulate, uh, an ambassador, they finally got this program. So they bought that at 2,000 English pounds for five-year broadcasting right. Wow. And so with my TV and the Follow Me program, I started to listen to the English teaching program and was fascinating program. They, they would teach you, for example, my name is Coco, your name is um, Z. <laughs> Yeah. But the uh, more interesting part of the program is after the teaching, they will show you the real people speaking and talking those sentences. Mm. And they will show you the life, the street, and everything ha happening in the UK. So the first time I saw what a foreigner looked like, how they lived their life, what a country out of China was like. No foreigners in Fuzhou at that time? Never, ever. It was a small town, less than maybe half a million at that time. Yeah. No foreigner at all. So um, with that TV, so I was sitting in front of the TV learning English, mm -hmm. and I was so curious about what was going on outside. I never saw a foreigner. I never knew what was going on outside of China. So in, when I was in high school, so we had to decide which school to go and what major to, or subject to study in college. So I put down English literature for Beijing University. Um, another reason that I was able to travel out of Fuzhou, which was a small town, um, very isolated from the rest of the, even China, uh, my mother was also very um, supportive, encouraging me to leave home, because she came from a distinguished family, I want to say uh, briefly about her family. Um, that family had some uh, prominent uh, people, including Chief Just Justice, including the tutor to the last emperor of Puyi. So mm. I still pay um, tribute to my family temple in Fuzhou each year when I visit China. What is unique about this family was um, the when you go to a family temple, in most of the cases, you see signs like creating wells, um, Buddha, please bless my um, descendants and my children. But in our family temple, you won't see this. So 
three principles that this family have been trying to pass down from generation to generation. One is emphasis on education, and second, be kind to people and avoid any small, bad idea, however small it is. And the third principle is children should leave home and travel far. So mm. I think that probably is something that, that my mother inherited from the tradition of this family. So unlike most of the parents at that time, my mother always encouraged me to leave home. Even as a daughter, usually you expect them to stay home at that age, at that time in China, and to look after uh, parents. But my mother never asked me uh, to do so. And uh, one small thing I want to uh, tell you, she gave me a bracelet I forgot to bring with me, a gold bracelet, identical. She made two bracelet, one for me, one for my brother. The reason she made these two bracelets was she said, I see in you that you don't belong here. You may belong to a place far, far, far away from here. So you may travel so far away someday, and you may not even come home. You may not even be able to see your brother, and you, you and your brother may not even recognize yourself when the day comes and you finally meet each other. So show your brother, and you, you guys can show the bracelet, which are identical, and you can recognize each other through the bracelet. So this is something that she got into her mind, that I belong to a place far, far, far away, I don't know where she got this idea. She never traveled out of Fuzhou um, in her life. Maybe the, the last stage. Maybe she meant Silicon Valley instead of New York where you live. Maybe her, her last life. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that was the story. Um, so I decided to go to Beijing to study English and I got into Beijing University. And between 84 and 91, that was the most fascinating time in China in a way that people enjoyed the most freedom of spirit and in terms of ideology. So you could debate anything in school and talk about um, democracy, debate on democracy, science, politics, anything. And even 1984, I remember the first year I was in Beijing on the Tiananmen Square parading to celebrate the 35th anniversary of um, PRC, People's Republic of China. One banner caught the whole world's attention. Some of my um, Beijing University students, they was holding up a banner made from the bed sheet, which says on a banner, hello, Xiaoping which is a very casual but very friendly gesture from the student to show that intellectuals at that time were very um, supportive and they, they really grat grateful for Deng Xiaoping's economic and political reform. Mm. So it was, that was a time of harmony between the uh, government. I have so many questions, sure. so I wonder if we can like jump into the meat of the conversation sure. where, you know, what I struggle with is you have China becoming very important as a marketplace, but increasingly more and more difficult for 
foreign companies to expand and succeed, especially for Silicon Valley companies, right? There's so many Silicon Valley companies that have gone there and failed spectacularly, and the mm -hmm. list goes on and on and on. Uh, Uber was making a big push, and then they just backed up. So recently, you can argue that there hasn't been one great success. However, an employer of my Intel, you know, still does well at, in China. But I'd love to understand, like, how does an American company continue to succeed and grow in China? And I'm sure this question is very relevant. Yeah, it's the first time I ever saw, saw, saw you show empathy for American companies, but thank you. I'm <laughs> glad to see that. How do you succeed? Um, there are examples of success stories of American companies in China, um, but China has evolved so much, so you have to look at the examples of success or failure depending on which period of time you look at. For example, for those for companies, right now, like for right now... Focusing on right now and going into the future. Sure. In China right now, I can still give you quite a number of examples of success stories. Amazon, um, Starbucks, mm -hmm. even Microsoft. Oh, oh yeah. I'm not so arguing the point excellent. that they're not successful. I mean, mm -hmm. look at KFC. I mean, every, any Chinese kid is eating KFC every, mm -hmm. every other day, which is, I don't think, very good because you see little kids putting out a lot of pounds. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is for a, a American company that's going into China right now, doing business in, in China right now, how should they deal with the changing environment? That's good. Um, <clears throat> or I can just use some examples um, okay. of how the Americans succeed in China or do business in China these days. Um, the one of the challenges that American companies are facing in China is they do not adapt to the market. So they would treat China as just another state of the U.S. So they would make decisions right from the U.S. and then pass on the demand or orders to their people in China, their counterparties in China. And so the, the, the decision is not based on the market itself, it's based on what people think that how China should be operated. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the challenges that so uh, U.S. companies is, really is facing. You've talked about localization, mm. right? Mm. And what's your take on localization? Well, I think um, you're making a very good point. I do think that localization is much more difficult than Americans think. And um, I would say that uh, based on our experiences in a number of different countries, that is, I'm talking about Silicon Valley Bank now, uh, experiences in a number of different countries, it could be that localization in China is even more difficult than it would be in many, many other countries. And I was telling Z actually uh, a little earlier today that I saw three levels of um, obstacle mm -hmm in China from the American company point of view. And it could be I hadn't thought it through well. Maybe there's more. But the first is there's always the regulatory uh, uh, obstacle because um, I believe firmly, based on our own experience, that um, uh, regulations in China are often selectively enforced in a way that disadvantages the foreign company, which was true in our case. Um, 
But even if you get past that, there are two other levels uh, that are, are fit into the category of localization mm -hmm. where the obstacles are so great. It's almost impossible and it's nobody's fault. It's, it's just the way it is. There's no intent. So the first one, I think, um, would be trying to adapt to the tastes of the people. Um, and I think that's, that's much more difficult than it appears. So uh, a good example in the banking industry would be that one thing Silicon Valley Bank does in the US and in most Western countries, it puts a huge amount of emphasis on client service. Huge amount. Um, but most of our customers are willing to pay for it. Um, in China, if you, if, you, if you ask the companies that we work with in China, what's most important, price, speed, and customer service, I will almost guarantee that speed will be, the, uh, price will be the most price. important, speed will be the second most important, and customer service, it's nice, but... Good to have. Good to have, but you don't need it. <laughs> no. You don't need it. <clears throat> and then the, the, the next level, after you get past the tastes, and the problem is it took us five or six years to figure that out. Um, once you get past the taste, then there's the, a level which I think of as guanxi. And the truth is that um, you have to become part of the social fabric in many cases. Now, maybe not in the case of consumer companies. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I don't, think, um, I don't think that a McDonald's needs to become part of the social fabric, although they do have a, serious challenges on the taste front. Mm -hmm. But if you're in banking, by way of example, you really have to become part of the social fabric because deals are funneled toward this player or this player or this player because we've known each other yeah. for so long. And that can be a huge, mm -hmm. and it's nobody's fault. That's right. I want to also um, talk about a, a financial service um, example, uh, which is American company. Mm -hmm. So that could be very relevant to what you're talking about, for example, Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. um, the, when, it when it comes to regulation and regulatory um, area, China is, is there is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of gray area. And so you have to be very careful. Um, here's an example. Um, there was a small size American company based in New York. They wanted to enter China to do business, to provide um, a trading platform and services to derivative product um, traders. Mm. But that was a gray area. You cannot find any regulation that says you cannot do it or cannot offer the service or, um, a reg or guideline that tells you what to do. Mm. So it's, it's just very gray. You don't know what to do. So I was helping this company to, to take it to the, to the market. You can see that a lot of companies are treading in the muddy water. They try to do this and that, but nobody knows what is the risk. Uh, what is the opportunity here? But it, there was put a huge potential uh, in this area. So what we did, and I tried to help guide the company through, was building a relationship with the regu uh, regulator. So I constantly go to China to shake hand with the regulator, to show my face to them so to remember me and know what we are doing. And secondly, we try to provide value-added services to the regulator. Mm. And for example, we help them train uh, traders. We provide regulatory um, training sections for their people. 
For the regulators themselves. Yes, for yeah. themselves. So, and uh, want, no, again, again, we do it again, again, and again for years. And one day, we were, you know, after the forum or an event, I was meeting with the regulator, uh, regulator again, and he was shaking hand with me and says, we appreciate what, what your company has been trying to help us. Um, we appreciate that. And he was shaking hand with me. And I took that as a kind of um, green light to, to our entry. So we were, so we could scale up a little bit of our activity in China, but of course, still in a very cautious way. When, it's, when the market is ambiguous and the regulatory um, guidelines are so ambiguous, there is a way that you can just, you try to understand what they think and also build relationship with them and stand in front of them and get them to know you. And you also offer a lot of Was it a little services. bit of a green light? Did they get the chance yes. to go ahead? Yes. Because, you know, we had an, a, a, an identical parallel situation um, in that we take warrants with our loans, mm -hmm. which is for anybody who doesn't know what warrants are, it's a right to buy stock at a low price. And when we first came to China, it's really important that we take warrants with our loans because the loans are risky and the warrants help to uh, mm -hmm. uh, mitigate the risk financially. Mm -hmm. So uh, the problem in China is, uh, from a U.S. point of view, in the U.S., uh, you, if it's not forbidden, you can do it. In China, if it's not explicitly stated as something you can do, you cannot do it. And so there's no law about warrants, or there mm -hmm. wasn't at the time. There was no regulation because nobody thought of them. Nobody was using them. So the regulators responded, you can't do it because you, there has to be a regulation saying it's okay to do it. That's totally something, um, that's something I, I, I understand in a different way. Yeah. If they do not explic explicitly say you, you, you cannot do it, then that means you may be able to do it. But, so there is a way you can find how to offer that services. Well, their view That's was... That's different from this, my understanding yeah, well, and, and my practice. I, I have to agree with Coco. I yeah. think it was because you guys probably stepped on the landmine that you didn't know. And they can come out and say, yeah, you can't do this. But for most Chinese companies out there, they're basically doing things all the time. And regulators are actually catching up. Well, this is now. what I mean by selective enforcement, though. If you're a foreign company... But maybe it's because of the relationship that she's talking right. about. Maybe it's not because you're a foreign company. It's because you don't have the relationships in place. Right? Think about True. Mark Zuckerberg. I think the traditional Silicon Valley approach is the Internet should be free. We should do what we want to do. Mm -hmm. right? And Facebook, they pay no attention to China, and they got blocked. Mm -hmm. And now Mark Zuckerberg is going back again and again and again to do one thing, to build those relationships mm -hmm. so that Facebook will be allowed back yeah. in. So we spent three or four years training them on what warrants were. Yeah. And for three or four years, every training session, they'd say, we still don't get it. And after four years, one day, and these were rel regu uh, relatively high-level uh, regulators from four different regulatory agencies, mm -hmm. one of them said, my God, I got it. And then the others all said, we get it now too. Mm -hmm. And then everybody said, you can do it. Just don't call it warrants. Give it a different name. But I see what you're saying. Maybe yes. what you're saying is it's not because we're foreign. 
it's because, because we don't know them. And maybe it's not because you're training them. They're also testing how strong your relationship is. So maybe one, maybe the best, there is a difference here. Regardless of how we describe it, there is clearly a difference. Maybe the difference is that we're looking for what we find here, um, which is clearly black and white. You can do it, you can't do it. Yeah. When you go to the Federal Reserve, you find out immediately you can do it or you can't do it. There's no, there's no grayness anywhere. With China, you may be given the impression that you can't do it, yes. but maybe if you build a relationship, you train, you work your way through it, they get to know you, then maybe you can do it. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's hard for Americans hard to, to learn. Yeah. I want to give you another example, just write about this. Um, Time Warner in early 90s, they wanted to go to China. So I was the one that took this project in hand, just single one, and I was working on this for one year. In the beginning, I was you know, told by Time Warner people, executives say, go to ask those regulators and give us a license. We want to sell our movies, TV programs, or animation into China. So it's excellent. So I knock at the door of all the regulators, and then they look at me and say, do you understand this Time Warner represents the corrupted capitalist ideology? Get out. So I had to leave, and I was, you know, banging my head on all kinds of, you know, I try everything. In the end, I, I said, maybe I should try my luck in Shanghai. A friend of mine, he, he was um, a, a director working for Shanghai Movie Studio. So he said, why don't you talk to Shanghai Movie Studio? People in Shanghai are very smart. They may understand what it is about. So I talked to the film studio, Shanghai Movie Studio, and they love it. They, they know who Time Warner is. Um, they say, okay, here's what we should do. Come with me, come with us. Let's go and meet with Shanghai Film Administrative Bureau. Let's sit down with them and see what they can do for us. So we were sitting down with the government officials and those officials were very smart. They got it immediately. So they say, okay, so you guys like this project, right? And Shanghai Film Studio guys say, oh, we love it. We really want to work with Time Warner. And the government officials say, okay, then we'll take care of it. We'll, talk to, we'll deal with the central government. You guys just figure out how to do it in Shanghai, only in Shanghai for now. Mm. So we launched pilot project in Shanghai movie. We started to show movies in some, uh, we call it private setting. Invited people oh. from outside, but you can sell tickets. But it's just in a private setting, which it's a kind of loophole. And that was the pilot project. And gradually, it rolled it out throughout the country to different cities. So that is another example that, that tells me, you know, don't take no um, from the regulator. Don't go to the regulator and ask them, hey, can I do this? They will always say no, especially some of the restricted areas. So just try to find a local partner, maybe a city, um, government like Shanghai. I, I really like Shanghai. I always have good luck in Shanghai. <laughs> and yeah. so they will help you. At least you can start from a region 
and then you spread it out. If it's successful, the central government may say, mm-hmm, maybe, maybe we should yeah. give it a chance. This is terrific, and I think we could be on this for many... Forever. Forever. In the interest of time, I really want to ask this question mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of people are talking about, which is this incredible flow of Chinese capital into the U.S., mm -hmm. right? And, and instead of just talking about investments, but talking about kind of acquiring businesses, doing businesses here, what's, what's your thought there? Um, you mean the for Chinese companies acquiring U.S. companies? Doing, or doing businesses Just here business in China. In, in the well, U.S. companies will be private equity firms, private equity. many of which are owned by the government or by an SOE that's in turn owned by the government. So we see all Although, this money. Can I, yeah? can I say one thing? Mm -hmm. I feel like here in the U.S., people say the government as if, as if it's one monolithic entity. But to Coco's point, which I really uh, subscribe to, the government is actually of many contending entities, True. interest right. groups. The yeah. cities actually don't many times listen to the central party, vice versa. Right? And for a Chinese business person, it's he's, his or her mind is always, where do I find the one party within the overall system to work with? Mm -hmm. That's why I want to differentiate the point of government, because it's so easy to say, yeah, well, the government owns all these companies, but it's not the government. Yeah. All right, I'll give you the point halfway. Yeah, sure. It's, um, <laughs> halfway is uh, good enough. Yeah. Halfway. You always try to find the entry point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's true that there's no single government. Yeah. That the government consists of lots and lots of different uh, departments and levels and voices and people. Who combat each other. Who will combat each other. That's absolutely the case. That said, I'll give you that. That said, the one I won't give you is that there's such a thing as private money. Because anytime anything gets big enough in China, it, it, it's going to end up with some level of investment on the part of the government. What so, do you think about that? The, the, I agree. Actually, um, no matter private equity or um, private companies, mm -hmm. they would use leverage. And where does the leverage come from? The government. Government's money, government loans. So in China these days, there are a lot, a lot of um, funds called government-guided um, development fund. Mm -hmm. So this kind of funds would lend money to private-owned businesses or SOEs to encourage them to acquire technology or companies overseas. Exactly. So yeah. they play a, a, a big role. So even private companies, they, they always, you know, private and public in China always intertwined. It's not so clear like not it is so in the U.S. Clear. In the exactly. U.S., you can definitely say that's public, that's yeah, private. So it's, it's yeah. You can't hard. say that in China. It's very hard. So you can say, oh, I just want to deal with private companies. Hey, but some of the money definitely come yeah. from uh, the so government. So what is their number one issue? These Chinese, one Chinese issue? entities without, without public money. Well, let, what do you mean, what's their number one issue? What is here in the U.S.? When they come to U.S. Oh, what, what are the, the number one challenge? Number one challenge. What, what are they, when they, what are, yeah, what's their biggest challenge here? Um, I think the, the first number one challenge is very similar to U.S. companies. They don't adapt. They do business in a way that they do business in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, China is a very unstructured market. So the same market. issue as the American companies. Exactly. They okay. share the same issue. Maybe they should go and do the same training. 
cultural they understanding should. training. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> maybe so, that's a new business. But the way, to, put him in the same the way group, to deal right? with U.S. regulators uh -huh. is not going to be the same as the way to deal with Chinese but, but regulators. It, but in the U.S., many times you don't even have to deal with a regulator. No, you don't. Right. Mm. Yes. No. So the mentality is very similar. So a, a lot of Chinese, they fly in with Chinese pickles in their luggage. So they will eat their Chinese food. They will invite China, uh, American counterparties to Chinese dinner, and they will just talk about business in a way that they do business in China. For mm -hmm. example, they like to promise you, great, I'm going to give you a billion dollars tomorrow. And so you, you got so excited. All right, we got the big deal. And, and so you, you want to go back and negotiate with them and, you know, and put the terms down. But you realize that as time passes, they never get so serious with you. So you keep asking and chasing them and say, what's going on? Let's talk about our contract and agreement. In the end, after maybe four or five months later, they say, oh, how about if I just invest a million? And you say, what is going on? You promised me a billion, and now you say a million. So this is, so Americans, a lot of Americans don't understand why do you change, you know, the last minute? So but, why? So here is the reason. In China, everybody has a mentality of grabbing things. Mm. If you don't grab it right now, you may lose it immediately. Mm -hmm. So people would just jump in to an opportunity, and then they just grab things. They say, I promise you, I'm going to invest in you. So you will stop talking to other people, correct? And then, once I lock you up, lock you in, then I will start to evaluate the opportunity and I will just look at the cards and say, oh, this is not the thing that I want. Nope, totally not. Well, so how can I explain to Z or to Ken that I don't want, that I don't want to steal? So in the end, I will come to you and say, oh, just one million. And you will say, I'm not going to do this deal with you. So that explains why Again and again, some Chinese, they, they just break their promise the last minute. Um, that is the mentality in China of grabbing things. Sadly, that, that, that results in them earning the reputation of being disingenuous. That's right. Which is a huge problem. Big problem. Getting over that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. But what That's interesting. But what about the flip side? Because there's still a lot of money that has <laughs> been invested, mm -hmm. right? What are their challenges? Um, those, uh, quite some money, they, a lot of companies, Chinese companies, they pay a premium mm -hmm. for the target. Why? Because, first of all, American companies don't trust them as much. In order to get this deal, you have to pay a very high premium. You have to pay the non-trust premium. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So that is um, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges for Chinese. And secondly, I think some of the deals, when you look at that, they don't make any sense. Why do they want this deal? And also, if you look at the market and say, this is the peak of the market. Why do you want to get in at this point? Because they don't understand the market. So they, they just get it. They say, oh, this is something I want, mm. and they get in, but they don't understand the market and the trend that well. Mm. So they always pay premium, and in many cases, they jump in at 
the peak of the market. So I keep telling them, I say, why don't you just buy low and sell high? They say, but that requires a lot of market expertise. We don't have time. Plus, don't you think, I, I mean, there's a question, but it's something that I believe. Mm -hmm. In many cases, they're under orders from somebody up above to, to complete a deal. And so it's better to come back with a deal done regardless? That's true. Yes. Yes. If, if you, um, you know, are given a pile of money, like a billion, and say, you've got to spend the money by the end of this year, mm -hmm. then you have to um, spend the money. As soon as you yeah. can. And of course, the person they're reporting to doesn't want a crappy deal. But it's better to show up with a, with a, a deal that's not great, but it's done, than it's it is done. to come back and say, mm -hmm. I got no deal at all. I agree. Okay. That's the case. Yeah. Well, we can go on forever, but yeah. unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh. And time flies. With that it said, does oh. when you're having fun. Oh, yes, yeah. I do. I Thank do. you so I much, do. It's fun. Coco. Yeah. And this wraps up another episode of China 411. Until next time, see you in the future.